My name is Jason, and you're listening to the Farming Eternal Podcast, the number one eternal podcast. Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, Ruben, or Barefoot Farmer, and Ben, also known as Ben Gracier. It's episode 26. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to be changing things up a bit from our usual episode structure because first and foremost, the draft pack changes were revealed and went live today. So in lieu of that, we're not going to do a draft. But first, we're going to start with a few exciting announcements. Then we're going to do our usual card, listener, and list of the week, as well as a shout-out to all submitters for our 7-win deck list spreadsheet. We're going to talk about the new 6.5 format at a very high level. We're going to try a new What's the Play segment this week. There was a bunch of uh, What's the Play pictures posted to the Discord, so we're going to take some of that discussion and try to distill it into the podcast. And our main topic this week will be Quadrant Theory, uh, hosted by Ben. So for the announcements this week, Ben, one is, once again, reiterating that we have a Discord. It's been absolutely awesome this week. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, people are really uh, contributing. It's It's been pretty positive overall. Uh, and there's just been a, a lot of post volume by a lot of different people. And that's that's really great. Yep. And uh, w- one of the things I like about it is, I mean, we have 20 plus people in there right now. But because it's uh, Discord focused exclusively on drafting for Eternal, we're able to sort of split it up by different channels so people can ask questions and talk about different things. And it's not all sort of lumped into one channel like it is on the official Eternal Discord. And we have a bunch of people who help out on the official Eternal Discord have come in and they've been giving advice and stuff. So it's been a great mix of very positive, very awesome discussion. So the next thing that we want to announce, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later in the episode, but Ben and I have been sort of bandying about an idea for a Farming Eternal draft tournament. And so we think we've come up with an idea that'll be fun. So we're, we're going to talk about details in a little bit, but like I said, you have that to look forward to. And then finally, we finally set up a Patreon for the Farming Eternal podcast. Everyone says it, but... These podcasts aren't free to host, and we have a lot of awesome listeners and a lot of awesome participation. So we've set up a Patreon with, I think, some pretty cool rewards, and we're also thinking about more rewards and goals to do to make it a little bit more exciting. But first and foremost, we just wanted to give a way for people to contribute to the show, to help offset the costs, and also to show appreciation for just how much work we're all putting into the podcast and our 7-Win project and the Discord. So we're really excited about that. So please, if you have any money or any time, check out the Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes. Let's get back to our usual show. So Ben, how was your draft week? It was pretty awesome, actually. I, I find that I get better at draft as the format goes on, along, and I have, I think, Three out of my last four runs or something were sevens. Uh, wow. A lot of them had splashes. A lot of them were, a couple of them were three color. So I've had some some great participation in the Twitch channel. We got our 50 followers. Uh, we bet so we are Twitch affiliate now. That process is all concluded. We have a subscriber somehow. So it's just been a great week 
for Eternal, I think. And it's it's even more exciting with the, with the release of the new format. That's really cool. I think just about everything I say this uh, week, I think, is just going to be an ad for our Discord. But, um, <laughs> but, but my draft week, I have not actually done, sort of like our, the last episode we recorded, I have not been able to do a lot of drafting. I'm still trying to catch up with all the podcast editing. It's been busy at the farm. And we set up this discord which has been such a time sink because it's been so interesting to read and talk with people in it that when i'm not editing the podcast i end up being in discord and not playing not yeah, playing it really, draft it really sucks that it's so interesting to read all of these comments by people and and go over interesting scenarios it, it really is taking a lot of time to, because of all the participation that we have uh, the phone notifications are kind of going crazy so that's a good good problem to have. You can also I, see some interesting pictures of uh, Patrick's uh, work scenario in there too, which is yeah. I think is quite amusing. And so to continue my um, ad for the Discord, our listener of the week is Spiffy Man, who's been a very active participant in the Discord. He started up a, a "What's the Pick?" and we went the whole Discord channel went through his draft and drafted a deck, which he then got seven wins on. He, that was uh, really cool. Yeah. yeah. He, he then pulled out a couple screenshots from that draft about for what's the plays, and then he posted those in the what's the play Discord channel. So there was a lot of discussion talking about different lines he could have taken and stuff like that. And we're going to actually um, talk about one of those later on in the show for those of you who are not in the Discord yet, though I don't know why you wouldn't be. So thank you, Spiffy Man, for such great participation. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the show. Yeah, thanks. So card of the week. What's your card, Ben? I've been playing like a surprising amount with a, a rare recently uh, called Enhanced Excavator. It's a seven time time, seven, seven. So that's a lot of sevens with a shift five. And then when you attack with uh, any unit, uh, you get one of your spent power back for this turn, which is kind of like there's no other ability that's really like that. So it's kind of like a more expensive tremor shocker but it has this kind of power generation ability that allows you to do some really crazy things and it led to some what's the plays and it led to some very swingy turns let's say on my stream over the last week or so the card is a lot better than it looks and i would say it's probably a lot better than most people think uh, it is still kind of a tremor shocker so you can't be too crazy about it but I would say give this card a shot if you see it in uh, in time decks because the things it can do, like no other card can do the things it can do. That's interesting because uh, like I... you can you can play you can shift this on turn five and then yeah. with the right board state on turn six like play two corrupted behemoths, which right. is or you can like play it on turn five and also play a three drop, mm -hmm. and then the next turn play two corrupted behemoths like it it can really just go crazy the way i the lens i was looking at it though was that since it's a a seven drop obviously you can shift it for five but like yeah. you know it's a more expensive tremor shocker you know for sure like it and it, and so the turn you play it is tempo negative that's that's for sure so then how it, it i always thought like what are the chances that i i can actually make use of its ability in the sense that i got to seven power um, played it, but also have still like a handful of cards. That always felt like if I was in that situation, it would be a bad situation to be in. 
it, it does. It, it's not a great situation to be in, certainly to have two corrupted behemoths in your hand or something like that. But it can it can dig you out of uh, a hole that you've gotten yourself into as playing a mid range deck, and you just drew all your top end. It, it's can just lead to some very good stabilization plays. Yeah, I hadn't thought about its ability to sort of gain you power to get you out of a clunky hand if you yeah. can make it there. Now, it doesn't work. The thing the thing that it doesn't do is like uh, Rusty Grin Emotive, where when you attack, it gives you a power. That, that can take you above your maximum power and allow you to play a bigger thing than you'd normally be able to. This doesn't work that way. You have to, like, spend the power, and then you get some back. So okay. the, the format is very uh, power intensive, so you can do things like twist a Corrupted Behemoth, twist a Razor Quill, twist an Ooze. Like, there's a lot of ways to use like a little bit of power on a turn, so maybe you'll be able to do those things and also, quote-unquote, develop, like shift in the, uh, the Excavator. And, you know, if you play it on 7, it's a 7-7, seven, seven, which is not not too bad, and then the next turn you're going to have a really good turn because you're just going to do everything that you wanted to do. You'll you'll twist your corrupted behemoth attack and play another one. the 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 turns can be very swingy. Now it's it's real bad on defense, and it does require a little bit of support from your hand, but it can be good. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say g- give it a shot and see see if you can get some good uh, good swingy turns out of it. So is this a card you're actively picking, or is it a card that if it fall if like time is open and it falls into your lap a little I, bit later? Like I think I think I would take Corrupted Behemoth over it, for example. Mm-hmm. But I would take it over Tremor Shocker. I would take it over some other high end cards in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I would take it over like really good removal. Um, or it, it's not a bomb. It, it, it's above replacement level, I think. Mm-hmm. And below the level of the very top commons. So okay. there, there, but there's a lot of room in there to take it. And I have gotten past this card all the time, third or fourth pick. And yes, you know that's about where it should go, third or fourth pick. Fourth pick, I would say. So don't be afraid to grab that and play it in a time deck. And you, you might be surprised on how good it is. Yeah, because I've played it a couple times just because it's been passed to me. But I just view it as a slightly bigger tremor shocker mostly so i would play it if i didn't like if i didn't get enough top end right but we well, can't but, you can't have three corrupted behemoths in every draft so you got have to fill in that those right. gaps with something else you know it's it's interesting <laughs> though to to say that you prefer you know you prefer it to tremor shocker not because i think that it's weaker than tremor shocker but it's you know it re- reminds me of uh carnosaur you know where this yeah. is constructed, but Carnosaur was nerfed from a six six for six to a seven seven for seven, and then it totally. Sure. Well, Carnosaur is definitely play. a bomb. I mean, I would say that's a bomb in draft. Yeah, even in draft, in constructed. In constructed, yeah, certainly. But you the, know, so there's like a huge difference between getting to six and getting to seven, and so yeah. you find the text that's on excavator worth more than the fact that it costs. You know, an extra power. An extra one. It's kind of like Snowmass Jotun's. I mean, Snowmass Jotun is below background rate, probably. Yeah. Uh, and Tremor Shocker is a little bit above background rate because it just comes out a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. But I think the the power generation lets you do some very interesting things and makes it more valuable than, for say, warp on the Snowmass Jotun or um, costing one less on the Tremor Shocker because typically. 
you're going to get that one power back from the excavator. Now you have to have a board stall or you have to have a, you have to have board presence. And I would say you should always have that in a, in a mid range deck. Uh, but you, you do have to do that. It's, it's kind of bad on its own. So make, make sure you have a little bit of go wide, have a little bit of, you know, flying in your deck and you'll, you'll get some good turns out of that excavator. I, I would take behemoth over it because on turn five, you just play a behemoth, the board is stabilized. Yes. So I'm not that crazy to, that I want to want to shift to shift to seven seven instead of playing a behemoth. That was great, and then we don't talk about rares very often um, in card of the week, so that was fun. Well, it looks like we're going to talk about another one here. We we are. So mine's uh, deranged dynomancer, which is the four primal primal one one with the ability at the start of your turn um, transform a unit into a five five dinosaur. Listeners might think. Hey, didn't you guys just talk about this card with uh, Celtic 7 Guardian on an earlier episode? And I would say yes. And we talked about it on Discord this week. But it turns out, despite me being involved with two very extensive conversations about this card, I had no idea what it did. Because I just assumed, and after rereading it, knowing <laughs> knowing what it does, uh, it it. It turns out I just misread it. I thought it transformed a unit into a ran a random unit into a five five, yeah. and so I thought we were playing Hearthstone. And so you would play this at the start of your turn. It would just take a random unit and turn that into a five five, so that you had no control of it. It just never occurred to me that you get the ability to choose the card, yeah. which makes this card way better, obviously. Like. 10 times better probably but, than I thought it was. And the funny part is I, because I read it as random, I have never played this card before because sure. it just seemed so bad to me. But the corollary to that is I just assumed that all of my opponents were just high rolling me constantly. <laughs> yeah. with this card. How'd they hit the best? How'd they hit the best <laughs> one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, they have seven units. I have one. <laughs> or, you know, like if I have a big unit and I'm like, and then it gets turned into a 5-5 five, five out of nowhere <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes that happens. And if people keep talking about a card, you should maybe reevaluate it. And you did that. And then eventually you figured out that it was it did what it did. So that's that's like a good story. It's a learning opportunity. Yeah, and so this all came out in Discord, so we had a, a great conversation about it with a, a lot of laughing at my expense. But if you do want to get involved with me learning what the actual cards do, join our Discord. So, Ben, take it away. Seven win run breakdown me. Well, yes, we, we still had quite a few uh, submissions this week, less than previous weeks, but I think that's because people are saving up their gold for the new format. It feels like it's just right around the corner, so people are excited to draft that format as much as they can and maybe are drafting the current format a little less. But we still have uh, several uh, new contributors, uh, Caleb C., Darth Hernan II, Gemini, and Sidetracker. Uh, and several uh, veteran contributors. Uh, I had three seven-win seven win run lists this last week. We also have Chemomilk, uh, For the Eternals, Full Robot, Jed the Homerid, John Holio, Mancio1982, Man and Mouse, Parmalee, Raven Dragon, Soapy Elo, Spiffy Man, and Yam Yam with five lists. Five lists in this last uh, week. That's pretty impressive. 
Uh, and then uh, our list of the week, I'm going to call out uh, two lists, uh, one by Mancio1982 and one by Spiro, where they were just the most aggressive lists I've seen in this format. They only had uh, about three cards each that had more than three power cost. That's, uh, that's aggressive. A lot of one drops, a lot of two drops, a lot of three drops, a lot of things that shifted in for cheaper. And just get on board and attack your opponent. Uh, those are lists 500 and 505 in our sheet. Uh, take a look at that if you're looking to do some uh, aggression instead of the perhaps more common mid-range list that we see. So yep. that, and so that was really good. And so starting uh, starting today, we are now collecting deck lists for 6.5. It'll probably take us a little bit to get the spreadsheet ready and out to people, even once we start getting lists. So be patient with that. But we'll have a link to the new spreadsheet on our website as soon as it goes up. For sure. Yeah. Get, be patient with me. I, I appreciate it. And definitely, like this is the most important time to send your lists in uh, because we need to get our sample size up as as soon as possible. Uh, yes. Old lists are are still fine. You can you can send those as well, but make sure you get your uh, six point five lists in uh, as soon as you can. Okay, so like we um, s said, we're going to do we're going to do a very quick high level discussion of the new draft packs. Um, we haven't had much time to look over them, but I think there were a few things that stood out to us. Yeah, so one of the, I would say, most format-defining uh, aspects of any format is the fixing. Uh, and in set 6.0, the fixing was quite bad, so we saw mostly two-color decks. Uh, the biggest change in 6.5, in my opinion, is all of the fixing that was added. We have all 10 strangers. We have uh, the common duels instead of the uncommon duels, so that'll be much more prevalent. We have Bannermen back. We have Seek Power is still in the format. Uh, we also still have the Insignias. We have uh, the Humbug from Set 6, which are both uncommon fixers. We have Veteran Strategist back, which we saw in uh, Set 5, for at least part of that format. There's also Pledge units at both common and, and rare. So Pledge is a, a form of fixing, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have Crest, Cargo, and... Uh, multicolor pledge in the rare slot. So there's just a ton of fixing. Now, there's also a lot of multicolor cards in the curated packs. I, the thing I think is the most interesting is that the fixing and the multicolor cards are in the same packs. So you still don't have any multicolor cards basically in the set six packs and the fixing and the multicolor cards are in the curated packs. So you'll often be presented with a choice between a high power level multicolored card that you could splash and the means to do the splash. Mm -hmm. And it'll, I would suggest that you take very high level power level cards before fixing and fixing below lower power level cards, just in general. When you say uh, multicolor cards, are the three color cycle? Yeah, there are some three. There's, uh, so the, the displays are back, the, the various three mode uh, cards from set five. There's also a common cycle of multicolored cards. There's an uncommon cycle of multicolored cards. And then there's the standard like rare and legendary multicolored cards that we see in every set. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, because of the way the curated packs work, you don't see those cards very often. But there's there are a lot of uh, high power level uh, multicolored cards in the set. And multicolor is one of the strongest reasons to splash, I would say. 
like the fixing obviously will help splash these multicolored cards in the curated packs. Is it also going to help with all the double influence cards? Yes. In set five? So Do I you think, think that... it's, it's going to make... Is it going to help in the sense that it will make them a little bit more splashable or just do you think there's still going to be a lot of two color decks, but just with like really great power? I I still wouldn't splash cards with double influence. I think it'll make those double influence cards easier to play. Most of the fixing is like the original dual power cycle where you just get both sources. Mm -hmm. We also have tokens in this format, which are the three color choose one. Mm -hmm. uh powers from set five those uh don't quite enable the double colored cards as much because you have to make a decision when you play them and they're depleted uh, but i think the other power sources like trail maker veteran strategist uh seek power the duels those all strongly support uh, the double influence cards as well so we'll mm -hmm. see more ability to play those in two color decks and play them in three-color decks or maybe a two-color deck with a couple splashes or something like that. That'll be much more doable with these new power bases. I, I think the thing that's also important uh, from this, because the fixing is in the middle packs, the curated packs, you'll want to be looking for splashable cards in the first pack, the first right. and last pack, because that's not competing with the fixing. So pick up your cannon or your uh, sprite or your spiteful strike or something like that, and you'll be able to play that card in your deck. I anything that's single faction, anything that's good early, good late, those cards are cards you should be looking at in set six, in pack one. And then you'll pick up the fixing for those cards in in the middle packs. Yes. Uh, the the middle packs are going to be are going. It's going to be very hard to make decisions in those middle packs because there's going to be a lot of a lot of strong options. Yeah, I'm very excited because it seems like these draft packs, even with just this fixing coming back and to a lesser extent, like the introduction of the multi-color cards is just going to really change up how you have to draft For the sure. format. Yeah. It's sort of even ignoring most of what cards are in the curated packs. It's just you're going to have to have a whole different process, you know, a sort of heuristic going into these into this this new format. This is going to be a dramatically different format. It's going to be different. It's going to be somewhat similar to set five, but it's going to be different because the multicolor cards are not in pack one. The multicolor mm -hmm. cards are in the pack with the fixing, which is going to be dramatically different. So also the thing that I've noticed is that removal is quite weak in the curated packs. It's almost non-existent. There's only just a very small handful of removal cards, and they're typically like uh, relic weapons. Uh, mm -hmm. in those curated packs. And we may see a little less support for things like Twist uh, out, out of those packs. Also, there's there's more creatures. They, they, they took out spells and put creatures in for the most part, which is probably good. Uh, if you care to know more about uh, what cards were added or removed, I've created an, an Excel sheet and linked it in the Discord with every card that has been added or removed in the format from the curated packs. So take a look at that. So then the next thing we wanted to talk about is the first ever Farming Eternal tournament. So like I said, uh, this is something that Ben and I have been talking about for a little bit is how to make, how do, how do you, how can you do a draft, <laughs> a draft tournament 
asynchronously yeah, with the it. limitations that Direwolf has put upon us in the sense that we can't actually challenge each other uh, with 45 card decks. So we think we've come up with a, a fun idea called Double Draft Duels. The purpose of this tournament is first to give us a chance to sort of test out uh, this asynchronous round-robin tournament idea that we have, and also to connect the Farming Eternal listeners with each other, but also to allow us to sort of say goodbye to set six. So the structure of the, the main structure of this tournament is we're going to take our best list from uh, the set six format. So any of you have submitted lists to um, the spreadsheet, you know, we're going to take one of those lists and we're going to use those lists to play against each other in this tournament to see what deck comes out on top. Um, ben, do you want to give a little bit more detail in exactly how we're going to do that? Sure. So I think something that a lot of people have wished for is when you get done with a really good run, you just want to play more games with that deck because you did a good job drafting it and it got a lot of wins and so on. So it's, it's quite natural to want to want to play more games. And, so, and everyone probably has a list like this from set six. So you'll take your set 6.0 list and you'll just, we can't challenge with 45 card decks, but we can challenge with 90 card decks. So all you do is double every card in your list and then you have a 90 card list. That lets you challenge other people and then you can see who did a better job drafting by what the results of that challenge were. We have some rules for what happens when you go over the four card limit, because that's still a limit in the challenge system, but I think it's really cool. So uh, we have a, a document writing up these, these details. And so you'll be able to, you'll be able to use your seven win deck in a tournament format against other Farming Eternal listeners and see who comes out on top. Uh, the way we're going to do the matchmaking is you'll just play everybody. Uh, whenever the two of you are online, you'll do a challenge and do, do a friend challenge, play the game and record the list in an Excel sheet. We'll have a Discord uh, channel set up for when people are available to play matches and you'll just play them whenever you can over a one to two week period. And at the end of that period, whoever has the most wins will be declared the winner. Uh, and that'll go up on our website, and we'll talk about it on the the show uh, after the tournament is concluded. Yep, and you just might get a little special flair in Discord. All right, so we're going to have the the details of the format and dates in the Discord channel. So if you're interested in joining this channel and you're not in the Discord, I suggest you join the Discord and you can see that is. If you already are in the Discord, please check out the channel and then just let us know that you'd like to participate and we'll add you to the, to the spreadsheet for the round robin. This is our first attempt at this. I think we're going to iterate on this more if it even works out <laughs> to, to any reasonable degree. But we think this might be a good way because we know we're all busy we all live in different places to try to have sort of a fun competitive format that everyone can participate in uh so you'll uh submit your lists to the same farming eternal at gmail.com uh just send your list pre and post uh doubling and we'll put that in the excel sheet and we'll be good to go for when the tournament starts okay so we go on to what's the play so this is uh, a new thing we're going to 
we're trying this week. So the screenshots for most of these will be available in our show notes for everyone to look at um, so you can get a better sense of the actual situation though we're going to try to explain it to we're going to paint a picture a perfect picture in your head so you probably won't need the screenshot but if you would like it to help as a visual aid they will be there and we're just going to discuss some of the possibilities for what we should be doing in these situations so the first situation is i had a stone scar deck and turn one I played a Blood Nurse. Turn one, my opponent did nothing. Turn two, I played a Scavenging Vulture. Turn two, they also passed. So their board is empty. I have a Blood Nurse and a Scavenging Vulture on board. In hand, I have a Backpacker's Machete as my only three drop. So my question to you, Ben, is in this situation, what do I put the Backpacker's Machete on? That's a really good question. so I think there's maybe a few main options that you would have. You could you could put the backpacker's machete just on your flyer, make a three three flyer and attack. Uh, you could put the backpacker's machete on the um, blood nurse and turn it into a three three, and attack and in a future turn twist some of that away for bats. Or you could do something like sack the blood nurse to make a bat, then eventually put the uh, the machete on the lifelinking bat that you have. Right. Uh, so I guess a question that I would have is whether you have a four drop as well, because some of these plans have some some impact on what you'll do in future turns. Like if you put the backpacker's machete on the, the uh, blood nurse, then the next turn you would want to probably twist it twice with four power uh, and make giving you a five one uh, and then like three one one flyers. That's pr- a pretty good board state. Whereas if the plan is to twist away the blood nurse, you would attack for two with your now buffed um, vulture. And then on the next turn, you're committing to, to putting that backpacker's machete on and getting in for three lifelink, which is pretty good. You're not in time, so you don't have like horn to buff all of all of the creatures. I, I think the, the best tempo play is to put the machete on the blood nurse mm-hmm. and attack. If your opponent continues to do nothing, you'll twist and have an even bigger attack the next turn, which seems pretty reasonable. I I think that's probably the most standard, most obvious, most correct line, probably. uh, Because if they continue to pass, what they're likely to do is play some large creature. And then maybe your twisted blood nurse is enough to just keep on attacking through it. Uh, Like a 5-1 blood nurse, like you'd happily trade that with something like an awakened sentinel or uh, some some other uh, mid-range stabilization creature and then you can just keep attacking in the air with with your with your flyers some of which have lifesteal so i think that's like the most straightforward approach it's also probably the best play if you have something to do then something else to do the next turn because it gets the the weapon on board your board position is improved by the most and so on. If you if you twist away and then hope to play the, the machete the next turn, mm-hmm. you have three power instead of four, which is, is fine, and you have some lifesteal in there. So then the question is, do you go back in time and twist the blood nurse on, on turn two? two? Yeah, yeah. And so then you're attacking with a three-three lifesteal in the air on turn three. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So you do, presumably you could attack with the blood nurse before you twist it. So mm -hmm. you do uh, one less one damage death. that way. Mm -hmm. you, you do one lifelink damage instead of one flying and potentially three non-flying uh, damage that way. I think that's probably not what I would do mm -hmm. because it's a little all in. It does make a 3-3 flyer, but there's a lot of ways to do three damage and the game is going to take a while to win from that position. I do kind of like developing more more threats, which would lead me to play the Vulture. If you had a four drop, I think I would just play the Backtracker's Machete attack and then the next turn plan to play the four drop. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have a four drop either, then I think the Machete and then double twist the next turn and attack for uh, six or so. That's pretty good. If they continue missing their drops, you'll kill them quite quickly. Um, and if they have some removal, you'll get some value out of your creature before it dies, hopefully. I don't really like putting the Backpacker's Machete on the Blood Nurse without activating it, uh, because it makes you vulnerable to things like Streets of Flame or... Uh, without activating it, you said? Yeah, so like if you, on turn three, you play your weapon on your mm -hmm. unit, and mm -hmm. if they somehow kill that unit, they just two for one deal, right? Yes. Whereas if you put the Backpacker's Machete on the Blood Nurse and can somehow activate it as well, twist it, then right. even if they kill the Blood Nurse, you still got a 1-1 one, one out of the deal. So that's a little better. You run into right. this situation a lot with oozes. You want to like twist your ooze before you put a weapon on the ooze because then you're mitigating your risk. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're not suggesting take turn three off, right? If you, if you had any other turn three play, like if you I had did. a... A three three for three or whatever, then I would yeah. I would definitely play that over either of these plays. Just right. because it's better better board development. But I wouldn't I don't think I would take turn three off. I think I would probably put put the uh, weapon on the blood nurse as is and hit for four. Mm -hmm. Just because it's the most aggressive line, the most power used. You get a scout, maybe you can find something else good to do. Uh, it's just yeah. a little risky. Yeah, because that's what I did. I put it on the Blood Nurse, and like you said, it, it immediately got silenced next turn. Um, but no matter... Silence is not, it's not super bad. Yeah, no matter what I did, it, you know, that would have happened. But as I was doing it, I was kind of wondering if I should put it on the Vulture, because as we've learned from Frost Elemental, in turn three having a 3-3 flyer with the potential to become a 4-3 flyer, that's a powerful clock. The more you had a, if you had like a four drop in hand, maybe mm -hmm. that's what I would do. Like a, I'm not, there's not a lot of four drops in the format, is, unfortunately. But if you had some random 4-4-4-4, four, 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 mm -hmm. uh, then that develops your, your weapon, gets the damage in, is likely to get the damage in the next turn, uh, you're set up for a play for the next turn as well. So that's kind of a like evasive kind of all-in strategy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't tend to do those plays quite as much. I think if your Blood Nurse lives until the next turn and you double twist it, that's the best result you can get. Yes. Because uh, then you, you have are... your 5-1 and three flyers. That's, that's real good. So you, you're betting on that turn four double twist being good. Mm -hmm. And... If you get it, then you're in good shape, and maybe that's that's just fine. I guess I was thinking is, for me, I say worst-case scenario, but what I was thinking the scenario could be 
is I put the weapon on the blood nurse. It becomes a 3-3. I have the 1-1 in the air with the vulture. And then on their turn, if they just play a 3-3 as their 3-drop, then I'm forced to twist. I can't attack. I, I, I could trade off with my blood nurse. I would definitely um, do that. I would double twist and attack with the 5-1 into anything the 5-1 would kill. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's less damage than just having put not really unfortunately like because you'll have three one ones out of the deal and you'd much rather have three one one flyers than one three three flyer well i don't know that, that i would say you'd much rather have it but in yeah, general that's better there's so many ways to to totally stop three one one flyers from doing anything and i'm not in time so there's no easy way to buff them i guess that was my well, you Maybe. might have st- Stone Scar Outfitter or something like that. Yeah. That would be an AOE attack buff. But, There's but a, well, like I guess, one, yeah. one flying creature is the easiest way to brick wall it, and you have, in theory, removal to kill a flying creature, and then you're unlocked again. If they if you go all in and make a 3-3 and they kill it, there's no like counterplay there, and you just got two for one. Okay. You just lose the creature. Like I don't think silence is the worst thing that could happen to you there. You still have a 3-3. Like Streets of Flame would be way worse if they if, yeah. if they kill it somehow, then you can't attack and can't twist and kind of got two for one. You still got the value out of the out of the machete to have played it and have the unit not die, and you still have a three three and a flyer. So that, like that's not as not close to the worst case scenario. And I think it's likely that they do something like develop, and the double twist line is very good against. Uh, playing some random creature. Okay, well, that's, it's good to know that I'm just, like, intuitively good at this game. Again, if I had any other play on 3, I would probably have done that. Yes. Just because I don't like the idea of investing the weapon without getting the value out of it. Like, with Blurry Chaser, for example, I would pretty much always twist the Blurry Chaser before I put the weapon on it. And then when I put the weapon on it, I'll just twist it a couple more times again. Because then, if they kill your Blurry Chaser, you're good to go. You got your twist out of it. If you put the weapon on it and scout and twist it a few more times, you're still good to go. So that's that's what I mean about getting getting the value out of your right. toughness. Okay, so that was scenario number one. So we're now going to go to scenario number two. Uh, this one was submitted by Spiffy Man. Uh, and this is actually the deck that we drafted together on the Discord channel. So he is a Skycrag deck. It is turn four, and he's missed a power drop, uh, and he went first. So right now, he has the Yeti Instigator, the three power, three, three, for his board. His opponent has a war wa- an unshifted war wagon, which is also a three, three. In his hand, he has quite a good hand, uh, but the relevant cards are a Sensari Dervish, which is the three power three two with charge. He has a Pyre Adept, are his two units. And then his spells are a Char and a Furnish. And he also has a Backpacker's Machete. That's a lot of action, a lot of options yes. this turn for only having three power. Yep. And so this is turn four, so he can attack with the Eddie Instigator this turn. Yep. So his question is, what does he do? I think there are a, a couple obvious plays. I think option one is you put down the Sensari Dervish and you attack with, with both units. That's, get, a, that's the most aggressive line, maybe. Yeah. The other thing you can do 
is put the backpacker's machete on the Yeti instigator, make it a 5-5, you get a scout, you can look for extra power, and attack in, because the, your opponent can't block it then, or they can chump block it, but that doesn't seem worth it. And then I think the third line is, is to attack in, if they block, you're able to blow them out with, with Furnish, and then you still have two power to play your Pyro Adept. Would you say those were the three lines? I, I, in general, I think so. I think there's some ordering things that you can do there that might be might make things a little bit better. I, I think the Dervish and attack line is probably not very good because they will just block your Dervish. And the Dervish is a very good creature. Uh, I also think that you probably want to put the Backpacker's Machete on the Dervish because then you can twist it more. So mm-hmm. I think I would prob I would lean away from making a five five. Uh, I think the best way to get your creature through this turn is to just attack with a threat of furnish, because like three damage versus five damage. If you develop that, that's it'll get you more damage in the long run than by getting the short turn two damage right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, one of the things Mum brought up is with the backpacker's machete line. Our opponent is injustice and fall short is a potential card, uh, which would two for one us for for two power, which would be quite bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also um, downfall and gun down, which both kill it. And not this upcoming turn, but the next turn. So investing a lot of resources in one card is a little bit risky. So I think I, I think the lines that make maybe the most sense are. Uh, doing a, some kind of furnish attack to get the three damage through and maybe making a three six. I think if that's my plan, I would play the pirate first and then attack with the three three. Mm-hmm. Uh, our opponent doesn't know whether we have any fast spells and most fast spells would be not super effective here. There'd be pummel and furnish are basically it. So that they probably can't block, but if they did, you furnish, you make a three six, and you're good to go. The reason I like playing the 3-1 pre-combat is because then your opponent knows they can't attack you very effectively. So they're incentivized to block your 3-3. They'd rather block a 3-3 than a 3-1. And next turn, you're probably going to attack them with both. So they may as well block the 3-3 this turn and uh, get it off the board, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You're also taking a card like Daring Maneuver off the table, which might incentivize them to not block if they knew you had Daring Maneuver. So I like, if, if your plan is to use the Furnish, I would play Pirate Up pre-combat, attack, if they block Furnish, if they don't, hold up Char. Mm-hmm. Uh, another line that I actually like is attacking with the 3-3. They probably don't block. If they block, you just do the same thing we've been talking about. If they don't block, you just play the Dervish post-combat. You play a, a charged creature after you attacked, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But I wouldn't, even if I played the charge creature, I wouldn't attack with it just because the block is too easy. And then your next turn is pretty awesome because you still have the Furnish, you still have Char, you still have Pyre Depth and the Machete to put on the, the guy. They're kind of incentivized to attack you because you have a 3-2 that you're not going to block with. You, you would not block a 3-3 with your 3-2 Sensari Dervish because it has such mm-hmm. high value from the twist. They're incentivized to attack also because you can just twist and make them not be able to block. So you kind of force them to attack. And then you don't even have to twist your guy. You can just attack them. You, you can do your aggressive plays without even needing to use your aggressively themed resources. 
So if they attack you with a 3-3, you just take it. If they play a creature, you twist and exhaust it and play a Pyrodept and or a Furnish or whatever and attack. Uh, you still have the same Furnish lines you had the previous turn where you attack with your 3-3 and your 3-2. They're incentivized to block. You play the Furnish, that creature dies. That's, that's a really good line. Uh, and then you can keep developing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just rather develop the three power if they're not going to uh, block than develop the two power. I think that line is slightly better. And also, they're extremely incentivized to block the Dervish next turn if you attack with it, so the Furnish is, is going to get its value. So I think, I think that's the line I like the most. Attack, they probably don't block. Post-combat, play your your charge unit, which is just doesn't feel right. But you play your charge unit post-combat. And then on the next turn, you just do the same thing again, basically. You attack him for six, but this time you have the furnish up on the dervish, and they're just going to be on the back foot the whole game. What do you yeah. think, Patrick? What line do you like? Do you think that like Machete is the right play? I, I could see that. It takes its risk, but... I agree that um, there are risks because there are a bunch of ways to punish that i mean to be honest you know like gun down it would not feel good but you do have furnish as backup which would which would stop a gun down if you were a five five maybe but that doesn't stop that that's a plan several turns from now when they gun down you it's more likely that they fall short or something like that so i mean i think in this situation i might have just put the machete on get the five damage in scout for power because we haven't mentioned this but um spiffy man does have a heretics cannon in hand also so you are incentivized to get to six power now let's say you see a power on top so you keep it right but if you see a power on top you would have kept it anyway that the only play that you really want to make with a power on top is dervish plus furnish right because then you can attack with a dervish and furnish it Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have no other plays for four power. I think the way to do that play better is to just play the Dervish this turn, and then it doesn't matter whether you draw power or not next turn. You can still mm-hmm. do the Furnish play. The thing I don't like about scouting for a power here is that uh, the cannon costs six, and we have three power. Right. So even if we get another power, we need two more than that to play our cannon. I think yeah. it's somewhat likely that we kill our opponent here before we even get to six. Um because we have such aggressive lines and because their first play was three, three on turn three. Right. So I do kind of like, um, I do kind of like just developing the, the super dangerous creature without attacking with it, I guess. Yeah, no, I like that. It's a counterintuitive line. I mean, it's counterintuitive in the sense that who wants to play a charge unit, you know, um, <laughs> and there's without some, charging it, but I, I think there's some likelihood that they block. Right, and if yeah. you block, if they block, you furnish and play your three-one. That's a great turn. The yeah. question is, what happens if they don't block? And do you want to incentivize them to block by playing three-one before combat? Because mm-hmm. I think that that's that's a very interesting three-one three-one pre-combat attack. Furnish if they block. Hopefully, char something if they don't. That was a really cool situation. We had a lot of opinions in the in the Discord from some very high. Uh, high-rated people. Okay, so we go to situation three? This was from <laughs> my stream. So this, this scenario is a little more complicated, but our opponent has not has developed four creatures, but has four total power. Uh, they have two 1-2-4s. 
a 1-1 and a 1-4 flyer, the Torrid Test Pilot. Yeah. So they, they do have a, a large number of creatures, and we have three 1-1 one, one Grenadins and a silenced Devotee of the Sands, so just a 1-3. So we have a, a good number of creatures too, but we, again, only have four power across, across the four creatures. We have five power that we have access to and, and good influence, and we have a whole lot of plays that, that are available. So number one, we have a Warp Avarex Familiar on top of our deck. So if we don't play that, we're going to draw it next turn. So that's something. Number two, we have a Corrupted Behemoth. That's a, a four, six. Number three, we have a Horn of Plenty, which would make our mini creatures quite a lot bigger. And since their creatures are all kind of low attack, that's pretty reasonable. We also have the Enhanced Excavator that I talked about at the beginning of the episode, the card of the week, the seven, seven for seven, shift for five. That card opens up some options because if you play that, if you shift it in now, you can get some power back by attacking with the creatures and then still warp the uh, Avrax Familiar off the top, which then gives you even more power to deal with next turn in a fresh draw for maybe a power or something. We also have, <laughs> we have another five power play in uh, Cover Fire Marksman, which shifts to give double damage. I think that that is not worth thinking about for this turn, but it might affect plays for future turns. Uh, and then we have a six power play. So we have all these five power plays and a six power play of uh, Unseen Ghost Blade, which is yes. a six power four, four relic weapon that with Onslaught makes another creature. So we just have all of this expensive stuff. We have a not a power on top of our deck and a six drop we can't play and a bunch of small creatures. So this is really interesting, <laughs> this this scenario. And I did, I, I did the action that I believe is the absolute worst action other than just passing the turn, which is to warp the creature off the top. Mm -hmm. I just got done talking about how we have four five drops in our hand. And with five power, we instead decided to draw a card uh, and play a one-two. Uh, that The plus one power for the one-two doesn't let us play two five drops. It takes us to six, which is, you know, better than five, but we still only play one of the cards in our hand. So I think we have to do something with the some of the five drops in our hand uh, because it's just too power inefficient to not do that. So don't, don't do what I did. I, I did an absolutely terrible play. See, I disagree. <laughs> I actually disagree. I don't think that play is as terrible as you think it is. Well, do you, what do you think about playing that versus shifting in the excavator, a spacing and playing the, uh, playing the one, two anyway, you just get to play a seven, seven shifted instead. instead yeah. Doing that. Right. I agree that that is potentially a better play. I know for me personally, I would not do that play because we have a Horn of Plenty in our hand yeah. where your 1-1s are going to become more valuable. And the only units they currently have that could block a 2-2 is their one toward test pilot. Yeah, They could like double block or something, but... Yeah. So do you lean, but but that's not a uh, line of thinking that leads you to want to play an Avarax Familiar off the top. It's a line of thinking that wants you to play Horn of Plenty this turn and develop five power, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And th this is the line of play that uh, Flash uh, was advocating at first. In and this Rover part. too. R Rover yeah. was a and I actually kind of like this play too, where you play the Horn of Plenty, you turn all your units into two, you know, two twos or the the devotee into a two four, and a space. They have to decide whether they want to trade off, double block. You get a bunch of face damage in, 
and you sort of start a race, which I think with all the powerful cards in your hand, you might win. And also uh, they have they do have some face armor from these one two flyers, mm-hmm. and that that attack would almost certainly knock their armor off in case they have a, a relic weapon of of some sort. Right. It, it's Which, also it's also good to somehow preserve your little creatures if you're going to play the excavator, because then you can attack with them next turn with the excavator and do some of these things as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I do like. There's a lot of these plays that are very good. I, I think the horn play is is very good. Some people were advocating just playing the behemoth because you play the behemoth, you get a four six in play. That's right. just another nice big creature. The it, no, nothing can block it. You could, in theory, twist it to gain life. We're we're at twenty one life now against our opponent at effectively twenty eight, and they have three power and flyers that we can't block, and maybe they twist the Troy test pilot. Mm-hmm. So th- that's another just solid play, I think. The other thing that I haven't really thought through all the implications of that I don't like about the the shifting excavator and then a space play is that you are taking off taking out two units, which then lowers your ability to take advantage of that excavator's ability later on. Right. You do get you do you do get a guaranteed plus one maximum power for having shifted the guy, so that compensates you slightly, and you can attack you can probably attack with that one two on the following turn, so there mm-hmm. there is a little bit of compensation for sacking the units, but it's definitely true that with enhanced excavator you want a lot of units, because then you can you can do a, a bunch of really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. So going back to the warp play, I think the warp play is the slowest and most defensive but and value but i think it is defensible because they're they are not pressuring you and you have a very powerful hand so i think you are able to play sort of the slow value game and i think an unseen ghost blade is great against their board i actually think it's not that great because so let's say we develop our one-two flyer this turn, right? Yeah. And we somehow trigger onslaught next turn. I'm not sure how we would do that, but let's say we trigger it and we play our ghost blade and we kill one of their three flyers, right? Mm-hmm. So at minimum, our ghost blade goes down to three armor. Now, if they twist the Torrid test pilot that they have, which is moderately likely, the ghost blade may go down to to two or one armor, uh-huh. and then their flyers can just kill it. So Unseed Ghostblade might just be a one-for-one with a Torrid Test Pilot and gain some life from them attacking you. So I'm not, like, wild about that because one of their flyers is the Torrid Test Pilot, and that's the one we would be killing. We also have have to block with our one-two when they attack if we don't want our Ghostblade to die, and that is moderately risky against uh, a Justice Shadow deck. It might have something like sharpened reflexes or or whatever. But here's my thinking, right? So you you play the one two on their turn. I'm sure I'm sure they have a play, but say it's not a flyer, right? One of their options is to play a unit to the board. The other is to twist the toward test pilot so that they can attack over the Averex familiar this turn, right? Sure, I think that's likely. Right? Yeah, if. And do you think it's likely, so you think it's likely that they double twist? I think if they twist once, they're probably going to twist twice because they're going to have two mm-hmm. power left over and they haven't had real so far. So 
I, I think they'd probably just hit for more damage. And if they right. if they hit us with a three two charred test pilot, the ghost blade is not going to do more than one for one. The thing is, it, so they have a three two and two one twos. You mm-hmm. play your four four weapon and kill the three two, and you only have one armor left. Mm-hmm. They have two one twos to attack around your flying one two and kill your ghost blade. Uh, that seems moderately likely. They may also have something like a mob rule or a silence or some other kind of removal to let them just not care about your one-two flyer. And then you get something more akin to a, a one-for-one out of the ghost blade. Whereas just developing one of these other five drops is kind of guaranteed to be okay mm-hmm. because you spent your five power, you added a lot to the board, you attacked or didn't, depending on which of the five drops you play. Yeah, it, it does suck to have that that one two on top with warp. You know you're not going to draw a power. You're not gonna, you're not going to draw a card that you can play. I think if we had like for example two three drops in our hand or something that we would want to play, then warping the familiar might make sense. Or if we could do something with with warping in the creature, like if we had a a, mm-hmm. a two cost spell that we could play along with it, then we're getting full use out of our power. But I think if you have like three, uh, what do we have now? We have actually have four, five drops and a six drop in our hand, and we don't play any of them. We we get a little bit of value that doesn't really increase our options on the next turn. Or I though I guess what you could say is even if you don't go with the ghost blade by the, warping Averex familiar this turn, right? Next turn you can do the excavator play and play another five drop because. You're, I'm assuming yeah, even if you yeah. play the Avericks, they're probably A-spacing this turn. With, I mean, with their flyers. You know, they're probably attacking sure. in with their flyers. Sure, we and, take some damage. And so now you get to play the the Excavator and a Horn of Plenty or a Behemoth. You, you know, and then the Horn of Plenty beefs up all your units, so you still have that, that advantage. This is obviously one turn later. But also, your Averex Familiar as a 2-3 makes it way more likely that you get your two for one from the ghost blade plus you already got a two you you already drew a card by warping in the abrax familiar yeah yeah i do see there's some merit to that play but Mm -hmm. there's just so many good options this turn i i actually think so you're you don't like sacking in the one ones right to get the power and i don't really like that either which is why i didn't do that play so I think just kind of if you think about this hand naturally, you want to play the horn before you play the excavator. So I would say don't play the excavator. If you play the horn, you get a good swing in, a bunch of face damage, knock their armor off, maybe kill a unit, and set up your excavator for the next turn. If you um, play the behemoth, the behemoth is a big creature but doesn't really interact with their flying threats, and you don't really have the power to twist it. So it would just be dealing some face damage in the next turn. And mm-hmm. I think the horn, because the horn does two things. The horn does the face damage, but does it now. And the horn sets up the excavator for a strong play next turn. Because potentially you can do something like you horn this turn, you attack. Then next turn you excavator, attack again, and play the familiar. So you get you get the both of the plays in there. You get to make two plays in a turn. And then the turn after that, you do something crazy like Behemoth plus Ghost Blade or mm-hmm. something along those lines, just because you were able to get your cards out of your hand and, and all of these turns you're hitting them for damage. So you're you're being proactive, you're not sitting back, and you're trying to kill your opponent. 
that we could easily die to flyers here if they have like a couple of removal spells. And one of the easy ways to die if we like sh spend our turn shifting in a familiar is they don't really care about the familiar. They hit us, they develop a roosting warhawk or something like that. And then things don't look too good. I, I really like a, a more power efficient, more board developing, more offensive play, I think. Less value. Like if you look at this hand, we have four or five drops and a six drop. Do we need more value out of this? Mm -hmm. I do this I do this a lot. And I think it's a mistake to, to get that value. Because like if we draw power, it doesn't really matter. If we draw mm -hmm. some cheap creature, are we going to play the cheap creature? No, we're just going to play a five drop. What, what are we going to draw off the top? And that's not an Avrax familiar that even matters. Yeah. It, it, there is nothing. So you just play the cards in your hand and don't care that you like lost a little bit of value. That's where I'm leaning now. Like I had one minute to make this decision and I, I went through a, a lot of these possibilities and I just, I think I, I ran out of time and just made a play. So it is a lot easier to make a good play when you have <laughs> multiple days of Discord channel from high-level masters people. But I think I think you have to do some kind of developed play here. Well, I think that was a pretty good uh, introduction to uh, what's the play. Yeah. Um, if we get more of these, I think we might continue to do this on the show. And I think um, you should. Like, if you have cool scenarios, you should submit them to our dedicated text channel for that on the Discord. It's just a great place to get feedback from, like we have high level masters. Isomorphic was brought in via Flash. Flash brought some of these scenarios to Isomorphic, which is just crazy. Man and Mouse was contributing and no one plays more games than him. It's just a great way to improve uh, your game and get some good feedback from high level people. Okay, so Ben, you wanted to talk about quadrant theory today. Yeah, so quadrant theory is an extremely poorly named theory from the good old days in Magic the Gathering, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, don't call it quadrant theory because there aren't quadrants per se. It's, it's like a way to understand different phases of the game. And in original quadrant theory, the phases were developing or on curve, the early turns of the game. Uh, when you're winning, so when, you're, when you have a significant board advantage, when you're losing, when you have a significant board disadvantage, and when uh, you're at parity, or there's a, a board stall, or each of you have one creature or something like this. And in general, cards have different values in these different phases uh, of the game. Uh, a 2-2 two, two for 2, for example, is, is better when you're developing than when you have a huge board stall. So we're going to use uh, part of this episode to talk a little bit about some of these uh, phases that you can be in, what kind of cards are good in those phases or bad, uh, and this should allow you to improve your card evaluation because when most people look at cards, they only see some of these phases. The most common phase to see is when you're winning. And I believe that that's probably the least important phase. When you're winning, anything you do is, is good. Uh, but when you're in some of these other phases, it matters quite a bit more how good your cards are for those phases. So the, uh, first phase that I would like to talk about is the developing phase, because this is kind of the easiest phase to understand. And it's easy to see when cards are, are good in this phase. The, the developing or opening or on-curve phase are, are cards that are good in the first, let's say, five turns of the game. You play them, they have a large body for their stats. 
They're not a, a tricky unit or a utility unit. They're just a real unit that you can play that can attack and block, that can get things started, that can interact with your opponent through through blocking. You know, the way to think about this phase when you're viewing cards is, is this three drop a card I would want to play on turn three? Yeah. If the answer is yes, then it's good in this phase, right? Right. So some example cards that are good in this phase are Devotee of the Sands. It's kind of apparent why that card is good in this phase. It gets you to the later phase faster. And a 1-3 for 2 is a pretty good blocker against the common 2-2 two, two stat line for 2. So Devotee of the Sands is extremely good in this phase. Argentport Soldier is good in this phase. It, it's a 2-drop that can kill most 3-drops. It can kill all 2-drops. It can attack for 3. Uh, so it's just kind of an oversized unit for, for playing on curve. Uh, Rusty Grenomotive is pretty good in this phase. That's the three power two four that gives you a power whenever you attack with it. It also has Berserk, so you can get double power. Like Devotee of the Sands, it can kind of accelerate you into your late game. And a two four for three is an extremely good blocker. It blocks basically all the one, two, and three drops and doesn't die and kills basically any one or two drop. Um, so that, that's an extremely good card in developing. Char is a good card in developing because it is very cheap. Uh, it kills any one or two drop, uh, which is power is a tempo positive for you. Because it's so cheap, you can often char and play something in the same turn. Like on turn three, you char and play an Argentport Soldier. That's a really good turn. Uh, and it's because char is so cheap and because it interacts with your opponent so strongly that it is a very good card in developing. Suffocate is another card that's in that same category. Suffocate can kill four and five drops for one power. That just makes it very likely that you can kill a creature and also play a creature in the same turn, which is a great way to get ahead. Uh, and that's really important in the developing stage. I, I put Blurry Chaser here as well. Uh, Blurry Chaser is good in developing because it gives you things to do in the developing stage. Uh, it lets you scout and find power or not find power as you need it. That's a very aggressive attacker. As a 3-1 quick draw, it's a pretty good blocker too. It'll block and trade with three drops. Uh, it'll attack through almost anything before turn four, I would say. So it's just good in a lot of those, those areas. It's also a good onslaught enabler, either as a 3-1 quick draw or as a 1-3. Mm -hmm. As a 1-3, you, uh, you can't block and kill it most of the time. So you get your one damage in or not, and then develop your Onslaught creature. So all those cards are very good in developing. Let's talk about some cards that are bad in developing. So an easy one is something like Improvised Club. Improvised Club is a 6-6 six, six weapon for 8. Very good in the first five turns of the game. Play it. Uh, and you're, you do take a risk every time you put a very expensive card in your deck because it is bad in the developing phase. Uh, the card does nothing until, until the very late game. Submerged Titan is a card that I see a lot of people play. That's the 1-1 one, one for 3 or that you can shift for 4 in time that gets bigger whenever you play another unit. Well, on turn 3, it's a 1-1. One, one. A 1-1 one, one on turn 3 is not attacking or blocking anything. Uh, so you kind of didn't do anything with your turn. If you wait till turn 4 to shift it in, it's a 1-1 one, one on turn 4 that can't attack or block even if you wanted to because it's shifted. And then... Uh, you're hoping that you play more stuff. It's kind of a combo card that you need to do more stuff after it to make it into a real unit. 
that sort of a behavior is exactly the opposite of a card that is good in developing. The developing card needs to be good on its own right now when you play it. And that's not what Submerged Titan does. Silverwing Familiar is another card that's not very good in developing. It's a 1-1 one, one for 3. 1-1 one, one for 3 is not a good stat line. Uh, it can attack for 1 damage, which is not very much. It gains you 1 life, which is not very much. It can't block anything. It can't attack through anything. So it's kind of your ideal case scenario with a Silverwing Familiar is it gains you 1 life and drains them for 1 every turn. And that's just not a, that doesn't interact with what your opponent does if they play like a 3-3. Three, three. You, you can't block the 3-3. Three, three. It just, it's not, it's got to be big to be good in developing. And Silverwing Familiar is like the opposite. Uh, Aerial Ace is another one. It's a 2-3 flyer for 5 that doesn't block anything, doesn't attack through other flyers very well, doesn't do much damage. So it's not very good at developing. You want to like establish a board stall and then peck away for 2 with your aerial ace on turn some later turn of the game you don't want that to be your early draw or play i also put iron hook on here i think iron hook is okay in developing but it's really not very good because it doesn't kill most three drops it, it's kind of a utility card you want to kill their like deadly units so you can attack or you want to kill their mm -hmm. some kind of utility creature that's not what developing about is about developing is about getting some big creatures out there, getting the damage in, setting up your power so you can play your big drops. Uh, and and so you want to be doing that. So would, how would you say Curator Spear rates then? Because that's a two power play. It can trade for most two drops. Are we, how, would, how would that rate in this phase? I don't, I don't really like it. It's not terrible. I, I don't like the idea of two power deal two damage. I also mm -hmm. don't like that you take face damage to kill their creature. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like playing kind of a Gorgon fanatic role where, mm -hmm. you know, you swing into their guy and take some face damage. It's it's a lot better. Like what you want to be killing with a curator spear is like a 2-2 flyer or something like that. So mm -hmm. the phase that that's probably best in is when it matters that they have a 2-2 flyer rather than a 2-2 ground creature, which is more into the late game. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of low impact there as well. So mm -hmm. I think that's why Curator Spirit doesn't rate very high because it's kind of not good in any of these phases. But on developing, I think it's a good like last ditch resort. I would much rather just play a two-two and block their creature. Right. That's it, it. Trades a resource that's not good later. Now, force to prevent your opponent's like board position development. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that's what you want to do and then use your cur curator spare later when you can't just block with a tutu on a flyer or a deadly unit or something else. so if you if you have too many cards that are bad when you're developing you're going to be behind because your opponent in, in high level play your opponent will be developing and then you'll find yourself in the mid game where your opponent has a bunch of stuff and you don't have anything uh, so that's why we tell people to prioritize curve creatures. You want six two drops or whatever the magic number is that you feel is correct. But you want some number of two drops, some number of three drops, so that you are not uh, behind in this developing stage. You want to exit the developing stage ahead or even, not behind. And like I said before, we're not talking about, like, Submerged Titan is a three drop. It's not a three drop for developing. So. 
the more submerged titans you have, you actually want even more three drops because you want to be able, able to play actual good creatures on turn three if you need to. So d don't don't get yourself into a position where you draft a bunch of like utility two and three drops that have low stats and think you're okay, think your curve is good. Because what's going to happen is your opponent's going to play some real two and three drops and you can't attack through them or and you can't block them. Um, that's like Blood Nurse is a card that's bad in developing as well. Because you just play the one, one for one, it doesn't attack, it doesn't block. It asks you to pay even more power and then you pay more power and you get another creature that can't really attack or block. Um, so it, it, it just asks a lot of you. Whereas if you play Blood Nurse on turn six or seven with a horn in play, you twist it a couple times, you're feeling good about yourself. But you play that Blood Nurse on turn one, and you're just kind of behind and developing. What we're, what we're talking about is a way to evaluate cards. So this doesn't necessarily, like, there, there are cards that are bad at developing, but are still good cards. For sure. So yes. we are, we're not saying that you have to play all curve creatures by saying, by talking about this one phase. We're just saying, this is just a heuristic to look at a card and say, is this phase good for developing? We are of the opinion that being good at developing, is, this is one of the most important stages. So we prioritize cards that I think, both Ben and I prioritize cards that are good in this phase, but this is not the only way to evaluate cards and this is not the be all end all of whether a card is good or bad of course there's there's four phases cards will be good or bad in various phases uh like if you only considered this phase you would never play a, a five drop you would never play anything like that and obviously cards are good in in their correct scenario the the main thing i would want to say is you can't ignore this phase this is the phase you can't ignore because if you don't have anything on developing, you'll be behind, and being behind is the best way to lose. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's actually quite difficult to stabilize if your opponent is, is ahead. I guess one other card I'll call out is Corrupted Behemoth. Corrupted Behemoth is great in developing. You play it on turn five, and it kills every creature they have. They can't attack with anything through a Corrupted Behemoth on turn five. And it'll gain you life on the future turns or whatever. So just have, have some developing creatures... I would say a, a heuristic is something like six curve two drops. Things that are like Expedition Leader is not a curve two drop. Uh, and then something like four or five three drops. That's like probably something like the average that we see in the sheets. Uh, and just be skeptical of creatures that are not good on curve if they're not really good in some other situation. And don't don't let non-curved creatures stop you from taking curved creatures. Like you can have a bunch of utility two-drop creatures. You still need some more two-drop creatures to actually be good in the developing stage. Like a coastal the the silence the one one for two that silences injustice. Coastal that doesn't that. yeah that does not count as a two-drop. Do, right. do not count that as a two-drop when you're figuring however many two-drops you want to play. It mm -hmm. is technically a two-drop creature. It is not a two-drop creature for the purposes of developing or on-curve play. Okay, so we've covered the on-curve developing phase of the game and what you're looking for in terms of uh, typically creatures in that phase. Uh, we'll talk about some of the other phases uh, in future episodes.
So I think that is the end of our show today, because like we said, we are not going to review a draft in lieu of the new cards coming out. But I think over this next week, as we get in some deck lists and we get in some drafts of our own, fingers crossed for me, uh, we'll, you know, we're going to have a lot more to talk about in the next coming weeks. So yeah, so that's our show. Once again, a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Join us in our Discord, which, as you've probably heard, is awesome. We've mentioned it a lot this episode. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. Uh, finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts about Farming Eternal. Uh, she's really stepped up and um, started helping out a bunch with the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Raven. And don't forget to send in all your 7-win deck lists for the 6.5 format to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Bye. You're supposed to say bye. You you never say bye. Bye, bye, bye. And don't Uh, forget to sign up for Patreon. (laughs) Sure. So I'll say... What should I say? Jeez, I don't know. Uh, Thanks for listening. Oh, <laughs> that's a delight. All right. And then finally, did you have something you wanted to say about Primal, Ben? Uh, in no way whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not want to talk about Primal again this week. Are you, are you messing with me? I was messing okay. with you. Okay, good. Excellent.